Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to Wake Up Heavy, the world's greatest horror movie podcast. Hello and welcome once again to Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. This is Mark Bagley, your host, and this is the third episode on the Spotlight series on Stephen King. And today, or this time, I will be talking about the years 1980 to 1983, the books written under King's name that were released those years and the subsequent movies, of course, which are scattered all throughout the 80s and even into the 2010s in one instance. Just a little shop talk at the beginning here. There is a new outro that was, I think, intended to be an intro, but I can't bump off my daughter's intro just yet because I'm enjoying it. Uh, sent to me by Chris Reed, who does the music for most of the episodes. Uh, I think on these King episodes, I'm going to try to use the scores when I can or when it's appropriate. Uh, but he sent me a new, a fun little thing you shall hear at the end. That is not me, that's him talking, and I like it a lot. And maybe I'll get my daughter to do an outro and flip this back to the intro. It works either way, so thanks again to Chris for always supplying fun stuff for me to use uh, that I don't tend to think about on my own. One other technical item I wanted to bring up, hopefully the trailers and the incidental music from the scores and any little clips sound better from here on out. It's been a full year or more since I started this and I finally found an option to download the audio from YouTube clips so I won't be recording them the funky way I did before which was 
just play the clips and record on my computer and you could kind of hear the little computer noises in the background and probably some other incidental things. Uh, so hopefully that improves. Apparently this Stephen King guy is quite popular because these episodes are doing fairly well. So who knows? Maybe this all stretch this out and milk it for all it's worth uh, all the way through October along with other stuff that pops up. Uh, I realized this weekend that AMC was running a Stephen King marathon. I'm sure this was to coincide with the opening of It Chapter 2 that happened on Friday, September 6th. And I wish I had known I would have mentioned it on the last episode. But then again, uh, I think it's best not to do too much quote-unquote timely stuff in a podcast because someone may stumble upon this two or three years from now and be looking for <laughs> for that marathon. But anyway, AMC played, oh gosh, a number of movies. Uh, I caught parts of Cujo, Christine, Pet Cemetery, Thinner, Misery, and maybe one other that I'm forgetting. And a number of those books are, well, yes, books and or movies will be discussed on this episode. In the previous years, 1974 to 79, I think I noted that there were nine books overall. That was six novels, a short story collection, and then two other novels under the Richard Bachman name. That doesn't sound right. My apologies. That is six total King books, five novels and Night Shift, and then the two Bachman books, so eight. And the years 1980 to 83 did not show Stephen King slowing down one bit. We've got a little shorter time frame, and we have an even larger output. So the years 1980 to 83 might possibly be the most oversaturated in terms of Stephen King output. During this time, five novels were published and different seasons which collected four novellas, and five movies were released. The novels Roadwork from 1981 and The Running Man from 1982 were published under the Richard Bachman pseudonym. That is eight books in a four-year time period. Uh, to one extent or another, and I'll explain that in a little bit, all five books published in those years have been adapted to screen. Firestarter in 1984, Cujo in 1983, The Dark Tower in 2017, Christine in 1983, and Pet Cemetery in 1989. Uh, I'll be talking about four of those films on this episode. Not to confuse things too much, but uh, just a reminder that the movies released during this time were The Shining, Creepshow, Cujo, The Dead Zone, and Christine. So we've got some overlap there. Uh, the order that I gave a second ago was the order that the books were published and then their, the years that they were adapted to screen. So yes, I'm still sticking with that format. And like I mentioned last time, this is where it starts to get really confusing. We've got larger gaps between books and movies being released out of the order that the books were published and so on and so on. One thing to note about the year 1983 in regard to film adaptations, it has the most until the year 2017. And supposedly there are going to be four 
this year we've had two and we're supposed to get two others and i think one or both are possibly netflix movies which i am including as feature films regardless of what steven spielberg says uh, so 1983 had three, and we didn't see that again uh, until 46 years later. That doesn't sound right. No, 44 years later. Me do math good. And I'm not including TV shows or TV movies and all. I mean, I looked at all the adapted works of King's Yesterday and the list. I stopped at 90, and I think that was films. Maybe TV film? I don't know. I can't even remember. There's been a ton. I will say this, though. It seems like September is Stephen King month. I, I mentioned the Nightmare on Film Street series that they're doing on King and linked to that in, in one of the show notes for one of these episodes. But I'm seeing it a bunch all over. A lot of that has to do with uh, It Chapter 2 coming out. He's released a new book, and it's almost October, which means Halloween. And so I think we really, uh, horror fans in general, get this itch to watch his movies and read his books during this time. And we'll find that a number of his books are published during this month. August and September are popular times for his books to come out and that is the case with firestarter which was published on september 29th 1980 that happens to be my daughter's birth date not the year <laughs> obviously because i was 11 but yes september 29th so she shares a birthday with firestarter i'll have to let her know and she won't care one single bit uh this is one of the few paperbacks that i don't own and I don't know if that's because I never bought the paperback or if I lost it along the way during multiple moves through my life or what. I know I read it and it may be that this was just a library copy that I read. Who knows? I don't think, though, that it is one that I read a whole bunch of times, maybe twice. I do generally recall the differences from book to movie, which leads me to believe that I read it at least twice. And much like Carrie and The Shining, we have a small child protagonist who has special powers. Uh, this time, though, the powers have been gained a different way. And this is one of the King books and or movies that gets a very big callback in Stranger Things. And one of the main comparisons to that show uh, involving King and, and you know when that show came out everybody was like it's it's as if uh, Stephen King and S Steven Spielberg are smashed together and this was one of those things Eleven although she doesn't start fires with her mind the way she gets her powers is through these experiments that the government runs that is supposed to be like the MK Ultra experiments back in the 60s and 70s I believe so we have that kind of scenario here with this secret government agency called The Shop that gives these people uh, a drug, a trial drug, that is supposed to, I think, heighten their abilities. And most of the people that they give it to die. But uh, this girl, Charlie McGee, her parents 
are the only two that survive, and they gain powers from this, as well as passing on these powers to Charlie, the unborn Charlie at the time. Do something bad. They used to love me. Oh, Charlie. She's eight years old. We left. And there are forces out to get her. What if we could train this little girl? Not for what she's done. Something's happening in there. But for what she is. Back up. Charlie McGee is Stephen King's fire starter. Will she have the power to survive? Rated R. Now at select theaters, check newspapers for locations and showtimes. So the main story is that Charlie McGee, the young protagonist, she's supposed to be about eight or nine, and her dad are on the run from this shop who want to get them back and either terminate them or use their powers for their own means. Uh, Charlie's mom is killed early on in the story, and so it's just her dad and herself. The movie was directed by Mark Lester, who the year previously had directed the film Class of 1984, which I just watched, I think, last month again. Uh, it's pretty fun. Again, we've got, uh, you know, it was made in 1982, and we've got the far distant future of 1984 with the quote-unquote punk rock kids and the, uh, you know, awful school scenario that got used over and over again in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he also directed Commando, which is a childhood favorite of mine, one of my favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, which I have not seen in quite some time. And it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. And this is one of six movies that he served as producer on in some capacity. So we've got Firestarter, the very next year, Cat's Eye, and Silver Bullet. And there's an interesting little story in the Don Coscarelli autobiography about his almost involvement in the making of Silver Bullet and his interactions with Dino De Laurentiis that I think are quite interesting and give a nice look into the way that De Laurentiis worked. Hopefully we'll get to Silver Bullet at some point in more detail and I will read from that section of Coscarelli's book. That would have been a very interesting adaptation of Silver Bullet, I think. We also got... Maximum Overdrive from 1986, The Dead Zone from 83, and Sometimes They Come Back, the TV movie from 1991, were all De Laurentiis productions. And like many De Laurentiis productions, this was filmed in North Carolina because that is where they were headquartered, so it saved them money, and also it was a non-union state. And just a little side note, this is also where Blue Velvet was filmed, produced by De Laurentiis as well. Got to bring it back to David Lynch somehow. And we've got an interesting cast. We have young Drew Barrymore, fresh off of E.T. We have David Keith. And then we've got some uh, Academy Award winners in this group, or Academy Award nominees. George C. Scott, Martin Sheen returns. So this is two movies in two years uh, based on Stephen King works that he is in. Got Louise Fletcher, Art Carney, Moses Gunn, and everybody's favorite stunt person, Dick Warlock. Oh, and I shouldn't dismiss Heather Locklear as Charlie's mom, who doesn't last very long in the movie. Uh, she was very big in the early 80s, especially among teenage boys. Firestarter is fairly faithful to the novel. They 
get most of the main plot points into the film. It feels at times like a TV movie and the pacing is a little wonky throughout. And this is where being faithful maybe doesn't serve the movie as well. Uh, Also, Drew Barrymore, who was an absolute dynamite in E.T., completely natural. Uh, I think by this time, she's her acting is a little forced. And this would continue into Cat's Eye, which she's also in the next year. So it's not as believable this time around. And then we have this weird choice of George C. Scott as the character John Rainbird, who is a Native American. And I remember when I read the book, I always had Will Sampson in my head as that character. I had seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and just pictured him in that role. And I don't know if he was still acting at that time or not. I know he died in the 80s. I'm pretty sure he was still alive. Maybe he was ill. Or maybe they just didn't try at all. But uh, yeah, it's a little, you know, these days that would get uh, blasted for sure. Back then it was just an odd choice. And it's not one of George C. Scott's finest performances. Martin Sheen is very much like his character in The Dead Zone. Uh, Sleazy, government, bad guy, again. Which he does so very well. So it's it's decent uh, casting there. And this is heavy on the special effects because we have a kid who can create fire out of thin air. And this is how she hurts people or gets out of situations. So the effects are decent for 1984 standards. You know, they would do it all CGI now. Well, maybe not all, but you know, most of it CGI, which probably wouldn't look all that much better. It's always fun for me, at least, when stuff is done on set, in camera, It's just not a movie that I return to um, as often as many others. If it's, you know, if I'm in that Stephen King mood and it's available somewhere, I will watch it. I watched it, I think, a couple of months ago for the heck of it. Now, what kind of talk is that from a nice little girl like you? Go to hell! It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, You don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Less than one year later... Cujo was published on September 8th, 1981, so it just had a birthday. And it is famously known as the novel that King says he barely remembers writing. This was due to King's substance abuse at the time. I've read that it was alcohol abuse. I've read that it was cocaine abuse. Maybe it was a combination of the two. doesn't really matter. But he has mentioned in passing that 
upon rereading the book, he was surprised at every turn because he just didn't remember anything about the book at all. Uh, the movie was released on August 12th, 1983. It is the second novel to feature Castle Rock and contains numerous references to characters and scenarios from the Dead Zone, which were removed from the movie. Uh, Dead Zone hadn't come out yet. It would come out in a couple of months. But we do see a Sheriff Bannerman character, played by a different actor, of course. Much like the Dead Zone novel, the narrative switches points of view in Cujo between two different families, the blue-collar Cambers and the upper-middle-class Trentons. Uh, the movie, unlike the Dead Zone, kind of retains the split narrative where we have switched back and forth between the two families until their lives intersect. That happens when Donna and Tad Trenton become trapped on the Cambers' property in their Pinto. Cujo? From the novel by Stephen King, creator of Carrie and The Shining, comes a chilling new tale. Cujo? Now, there's a new name for terror. Cujo, directed by Louis Teague, rated R, now playing. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Cujo is a St. Bernard who becomes rabid after being bitten by a bat. As Cujo gets sicker, he becomes more violent and aggressive. He kills the Cambers. Is it Cambers or Cambers? Have I been pronouncing it incorrectly this whole time? Uh, anyway, he kills their neighbor, one of the dad's friends. And when the dad finds him, Cujo dispatches with him. The bulk of the story concerns Donna and Tad, mother and son, stuck on the Cambers' property in their disabled Pinto. And Donna is played by Dee Wallace Stone in the movie, and Tad is played by little Danny Pintaro from Who's the Boss, which was one of my favorite shows when I was growing up. And I think this predates Who's the Boss, actually, because he is really little in this movie. I think he's about five or six. The film also stars Daniel Hugh Kelly as her husband, Christopher Stone, her real-life husband, as her lover, Ed Lauder, Kaylani Lee, Mills Watson, and one of my all-time favorite actors, Billy Jacoby. If you haven't seen the movie, Just One of the Guys, make sure you get on that right away. Uh, he goes by Billy Jane now. I don't know if this was a, a mixed family situation. He had a brother named Scott Jacoby who uh, was in... I just watched an episode of Murder, She Wrote that he was in last night. Murder, She Wrote rules. And The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, which was previously discussed, which also stars Martin Sheen from our previous movie. Louis Teague directed, and his next film would be Cat's Eye in 1985, also starring Drew Barrymore, and also based on the works of Stephen King. And Dee Wallace Stone is absolutely amazing in this movie. I think that she could have easily been nominated for an Oscar. Danny Pintaro is... I don't know... <laughs> whenever I watch this movie now, it's either awe... Or horror that I am viewing this through because his performance, his trauma is so realistic 
It's either real or he was just an amazing little actor. It's it's horrifying what he goes through. And I kind of hope that it's acting, but I feel like part of it is real trauma. And hopefully it didn't mess him up too much, if that was the case. And of course, Dee Wallace Stone was the mom in so many 80s movies. Uh, again, we've got an E.T. connection. And we also have a connection with The Howling in that both were filmed in and around Mendocino, uh, where another one of my favorite movies, Dead and Buried, was filmed. And she doesn't play a mom in The Howling because she's a career woman and you can't do both, ladies. That doesn't sound right. I hope everyone realizes that is a joke and I do not believe that for one second. This is another very faithful adaptation of the source material other than the ending, which was very downbeat in the novel. And this kind of goes back to something that I mentioned on the last episode about reading the books Assuming that a movie would come out and what would be left in, what would be taken out. There is a subplot in the novel about the father Vic, played by Daniel Hugh Kelly, who works for an advertising agency and they've done this campaign for a cereal that uses this red dye. Well, people who eat this cereal end up either vomiting or excreting red and think that they are having internal hemorrhages. And it's this big disaster for the ad company and for the cereal company, and Vic has to go off and handle this. And that is what gets him out of town and puts our mother and son characters in peril as they have to take this broken-down Pinto to get fixed at the house where Cujo resides. And that whole subplot is in the film. It's a little truncated, but it makes sense for the plot. They could have done something else completely to get him away, uh, but they use that faithfully. And I think that whole scenario was based on either a real event or there was, I remember there was a red dye, red number, whatever, that kind of caused this um, (laughs) discoloration in people's bowel movements. That doesn't sound right. That is one of my least favorite terms in the world. Yeah, so this has become one of my favorite adaptations over the years. I didn't care for it as much when I was younger. But those performances, the the dog action is actually very good, I have come to realize. And this brings up something I saw on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Somebody posted a picture of a stuntman in the dog costume. And so I looked at it and, you know, liked it or whatever and was looking at the comments and... So many of the comments stated, I can't believe that was all a stuntman, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I had to insert myself in that and say, there were actual dogs used. I think there were four or five dogs. There was a different breed of dog put in a St. Bernard costume. There were real St. Bernards. There was a puppet head. And there was a stuntman in a full dog costume used for specific shots. This is how disinformation gets spread, people. Come on, it's not all a man in a costume. But my point was going to be that the dog attacks are all very convincing, and this is where the art of filmmaking comes in. It's camera movements, camera angles, editing, a lot of editing, sound effects, and the makeup effects on the dog when he is in full-blown rabies mode, 
that are extremely convincing. My daughter happened to walk in the other day when I was watching this on AMC, and she said, that dog does not look good. And I said, nope, it's got rabies. And it is pretty disgusting looking towards the end. It kind of reminds me a lot of the stuff that we see on Dr. Pole. Lots of pus. There's no I'm just going to talk about these next two books briefly. We'll either get back to them at a later time uh, or not at all, depending on the book. Uh, the next published book was The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. And this is one of the Stephen King books that I have never, ever read. I was not interested in the Dark Tower series when it started. I haven't read any of the entries. And so I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than it was published on June 10th, 1982. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is more of a novella than a novel. Uh, and then, of course, there have been, I think, eight books and maybe a short story. And the novel, The Talisman, that Peter Straub and King wrote together, I think has kind of been retconned to be included in the Dark Tower universe. So way back then, even, King was uh, creating his own shared universe, which is, this made me, I thought about this the other day, I mentioned that I liked when Castle Rock showed up in different books and different stories, and it has to do with that idea of a shared universe, which of course is big these days with the Marvel and DC movies and comic books. So that was part of that appeal to me back then before we really knew what a shared universe was or used that term, I should say. And so King had that shared universe of Castle Rock, Jerusalem's Lot, Derry, which would show up in It and other stories. And so it would be fun to see those connections and hear about Sheriff Bannerman in, in different books and stories. Like I said, Cujo gets name-checked a lot in the Castle Rock stories. These ideas will show up in movies, too. Cat's Eye has a whole list of Easter eggs in it. I think there's a St. Bernard in there. There's a, a car that's supposed to look like Christine and probably numerous other things. Having little to no interest in the Dark Tower series, I had nearly zero interest in the recent adaptation from 2017. I did see a lot of negative reaction to it. And I don't know if it was because this was going to be a planned series of films, but we're talking about an eight-volume set of books that was turned into a 90-minute movie, and fans were not happy. The movie recently showed up on HBO, so I gave it a whirl and made it about 20 minutes in. I don't think it was not being familiar with the story that didn't work it was just the filmmaking itself and I could not follow along even in that short amount of time so I gave up and who knows maybe I'll get back to it someday but I highly doubt it after the dark tower different seasons the collection of novellas was published on August 27th 1982 that is two months apart people and again I know they're not written in that order that quickly these uh, were written through the years I I think there were dates. They probably have the dates on 
either his website or Wikipedia. Uh, But those stories include Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, Apt Pupil, The Body, and The Breathing Method. Three of those stories have been adapted into films, and The Breathing Method is supposedly scheduled for 2020 with Scott Derrickson directing. He directed Sinister and Doctor Strange and then the upcoming Doctor Strange movie. But I don't see it on his IMDb. IMDb and Wikipedia are not the most accurate tools to use, so I don't know which one is right or if that has changed or if it has been canceled. But the other three films have already been made and they include two of the finest King adaptations around. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption became just the Shawshank Redemption, which was directed by Frank Darabont in 1994. And The Body Became Stand By Me, directed by Rob Reiner, and that came out in 1986. And I will get to those at another time. Remember that story? I think it was the introductory episode where I talked about seeing that kid puke and how it kind of messed up my stomach for a lot of years. That'll come back when and if I talk about Stand By Me. Apt Pupil was adapted in 1996 by Brian Singer, and I had not seen that movie until a couple of weeks ago. When it came out, I really didn't have any interest in seeing it. That is not one of my favorite King stories. Of all the stories in that collection itself, it's it's the one that I've probably only read through once. It's pretty dark, and not the kind of dark that I'm all that interested in. The movie was okay. It has its own controversy to it, uh, which you can look up if you are so inclined. Uh, that's that's. I'll leave it at that for now. I've only seen the movie once, probably read the story once, and that's good enough for me. With all the power invested in me, which is zero, I am officially dubbing... 1983 as the year of the king we get or got two books and three movies and one of those books and movie adaptations come out the very same year 1983 is also the year of two king firsts for me one which i will get to next and one involving the adaptation of this next book christine Christine was published on April 29, 1983, and had the quickest turnaround from book to screen of any King adaptation, with the movie hitting theaters on December 9th of that same year. And now I'm, I may be wrong about that, but up to that point, that is true. I'm not sure if there's been a quicker turnaround since then. I have a feeling that that still holds true to this day. If not, and you know... Let me know. The reason it happened so quickly, other than King's popularity, is that the producer of the Salem's Lot miniseries had become friends with King, and King would give him the manuscripts of new books. He picked out of those manuscripts uh, Christine to produce next. And so that was started while the book was still in manuscript form and hadn't even been published yet. The rights were purchased for the film adaptation, and pre-production got underway. Christine is one of my favorite books of King's, 
and I can't find my, I know I have a copy of it or had a copy of it. This could be much like with Firestarter where I've lost it. I've loaned a bunch of these to my niece and unfortunately many of them are starting to fall apart. Of course, they're 30 to 40 years old. Yeah, I can't find Christine. Maybe I left it at, left it with her or a could have been another instance of reading a library copy and not buying the paperback. I kind of doubt it because this is, we're starting to get back into supernatural horror after a long break from that. It very well could be that when hearing that the movie was going to be coming out so quickly, I just didn't bother to buy a copy read the hardcover at the library and you know the paperback wouldn't have been out until after the movie came out so maybe I just never bothered but I know I read the book first had those same experiences what's going to be in it what's going to be left out what's going to be changed and I have to say that I was very happy with the film adaptation Stephen King John Carpenter Two great masters of terror have teamed up to take you for a ride. I knew a guy had a car like that once. He killed himself in it. Christine, based on the best-selling novel by Stephen King, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. One reason I was so happy about the film adaptation is that it was going to be directed by John Carpenter, who I was a pretty big fan of at that time due to The Thing, Halloween, Halloween 2, Escape from New York. All those 70s and early 80s films of his were regular rentals, and I have talked about a couple of them on different episodes. This wasn't a passion project of Carpenter's. It was more of a work-for-hire job. He had been slated to direct Firestarter previously and was dropped from that, according to certain reports, because of the massive failure of The Thing, uh, which is just an unfortunate deal all the way around. That movie is beloved now by most horror fans, or many horror fans, I should say, But it tanked at the box office and John Carpenter was raked over the coals. Almost felt like backlash from his string of success up to that point. A lot of people were turned off by the gore. That's neither here nor there now. It's one of the best things about the movie. But uh, yeah, he was let go from Firestarter and was looking for work, which was hard to get at that time because his reputation had been tarnished. And regardless of whether this was work for hire and whether or not he cared for the source material, which apparently he did not, uh, it doesn't feel like he half-assed it. Um, There are changes, but it's still pretty faithful to the novel, and it's a fun movie. Uh, It's well-directed, it's well-acted, we've got another great Carpenter score, uh, and I think this is one of the times when I kind of finally realized, oh, all his music is the same. I remember distinctly those little stings whenever Christine's headlights would come on and thinking, boy, that sure sounds a lot like Halloween 3, Halloween, Escape from New York. I love these special effects and always have. 
all of the shots of Christine reconstructing and fixing herself. It's all done in camera. It's all filmed in reverse and shown forward or vice versa, <laughs> however that works. Uh, but it's it's simple and it's effective. And I buy it every time I watch the movie. There isn't a lot of gore in this at all. It's mainly, I think, rated R because of language. I don't even know that any kills are shown on screen. I think they're all off screen, which is typical of Carpenter, actually, if you think about Halloween. It's got a great 50s rock and roll soundtrack and the George Thorogood opening. I've never been a big fan of Thorogood, but it just always makes me think of a kid that we went to high school with around this time looked amazingly like George Thorogood. So I always think of him when I see this movie because of that opening song. And that kind of brings up some of the changes that were made from book to film. In the book, Christine is actually possessed by the evil spirit of the previous owner, of the one-time owner of Christine, who was an awful, awful person. And Arnie, who is played by Keith Gordon in the movie, in the book, Arnie buys Christine from the original owner, uh, and then he dies. But in the movie, they buy it from the original owner's brother. So they kind of truncate things, simplify things. And it's shown at that uh, opening scene that Christine is bad from the get-go, not possessed by something else. The car is possessed by the devil, some evil spirit. It's never explained, which is perfect. For a film, we don't need an explanation. It's just a bad car who ends up taking over the character of Arnie. And a lot of the death scenes are changed, and Carpenter did that to make them more cinematic. I don't even remember those differences, but for the most part, it is a pretty faithful adaptation. We don't get wild with, with changes like some of the movies do. As I previously mentioned, we've got Keith Gordon as Arnie. We have John Stockwell as his best friend, Dennis. Alexandra Paul as Lee, uh, Arnie's love interest. And then we've got a great supporting cast with Robert Prosky as Darnell, the junkyard fixer-up shop owner. Harry Dean Stanton as the state policeman who is investigating these mysterious deaths. We have Kelly Preston in an early role, and her always kind of boggled my mind. She doesn't have a whole lot to do and very easily could have been removed completely. And we've got our good friend Roberts Blossom as George LeBay, the brother of the original owner of the car. And he was, of course, discussed on the episode for Deranged. Somewhere in one of those Why Didn't I Rent This compilations, you can listen to that one. The bad guys in the film, known as the Shitters, in the book and in the movie. Uh, this is kind of an interesting bunch of guys. William Ostrander plays Buddy Repperton, and I have heard that a lot of people think it's John Travolta in the movie, and I never made that error in my mind, I guess because I grew up with Travolta in <laughs> Welcome Back, Cotter. Um, he looks sort of similar to Travolta in Carrie, but yeah, I don't really get that. We've got Stuart Charno, who was in Friday the 13th Part 2, and an episode of The X-Files, one of my favorite episodes, 
Clyde Buckman's Final Repose, and he was in Just One of the Guys, which I mentioned earlier in the episode. And then in the background of the shop scene where Buddy is harassing Arnie, there is a guy named Joel Rice who was in the really awful slasher film Final Exam, but is also the producer of a ton of those Christmas Hallmark movies that I am forced to watch during that time of year. If I ever meet that guy in person, I'll have some words for him. As I mentioned at the beginning of this section on Christine, this was an important first for me. Christine was the first Stephen King movie that I saw in the theater. It was the last day before Christmas vacation and a bunch of friends and my sister's boyfriend went to go see it when school got out. I'm sure we got let out early, so we headed down to the Manchester Mall to catch a matinee. And I always had in my head that he was, my sister's boyfriend at the time, was three years older than me, which would have made him 17. So maybe there was just a lax uh, ticket taker, or maybe he was four years older than me and could get us all in. But regardless, we went with him. Maybe it was the peach fuzz on my upper lip that convinced them I was 17. Uh, But anyway, we saw it, and I loved it from the get-go. You've got King and Carpenter, two great tastes that taste great together. I wish they had worked together again. Uh, But, you know, you can't have everything you want. And, of course, this movie became a regular rental. I watch it at least three or four times a year still. And it's probably one that I should own. Maybe I'll throw the Blu-ray up on my Amazon wish list. And any of you listeners that are feeling especially generous can pop over there and buy it for me. That doesn't sound right. She had the smell of a brand new car. That's just about the finest smell in the world. Except maybe for pussy. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. King's next book was another big first for me. And more icing on this year of King cake in 1983. 
Pet Cemetery was published November 14, 1983, and this was my first hardcover Stephen King book to own. And that was sort of a big deal for me. I didn't have to read it at the library first and wait for the paperback. I got the hardcover and could read it immediately. I have a feeling that this may have been a Christmas present just based on that publication date. And so I would have had to wait about a month and a half before I could get my grubby hands on it. But uh, who knows? Maybe I bought it for myself. You know my memory. This was interesting in that it was the return to straight-up horror. Since The Stand in 1978, I've uh, seen a deviation in that from King. And the next five books, as well as the different seasons collection, strayed away from Supernatural for the most part. Still had some telekinesis and things like that. There is... In the novel Cujo, there is this idea that the serial killer Frank Dodd from the Dead Zone has somehow possessed the dog. I don't recall that from the book, but when I was doing my reading, that was brought up. Um, It's, of course, left out of the movie altogether. And Christine, of course, deals with a possessed car. Uh, So, 83 is, is the return to more of that supernatural horror. But Pet Cemetery is... A horror novel, and I remember it being scary and dark, and I was happy about that. It's basically a zombie story, inspired in part by the monkey's paw, and from some Native American folklore, including the Wendigo. It's time for another tangent. And that idea is kind of related to the Indian burial ground that shows up in so much of the 70s and 80s horror novels and horror movies. Uh, And it's gotten a little troublesome in more recent years where that is used as an easy plot device that shows Native Americans are, you know, I think the idea is to show that they're closer to nature and to their spiritual lives, but it really just represents them more as the other and it's tropey and king was no stranger to those kind of tropes and it happens in the shining and it happens in the green mile where we have the quote-unquote magical negro who is used as a device to help the straight white male protagonist solve his problems it's not as pervasive in the movie as it is in the novel but of course the titular pet cemetery is on ancient Indian burial ground that has gone sour. The the Native Americans don't go there anymore. Uh, but of course the white man does because we don't believe in all of that gobbledygook, right? Unless you're trying to bring your dead cat or your dead kid back to life. Since I was such a big fan of the book itself, I greatly anticipated a screen adaptation. And it took a little while, about six years, And it was finally brought to the screen by Mary Lambert in 1989. And this is one of a number of later 80s King movies that I actually saw in the theater. It is the place where devoted pets are laid to rest. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a cigarette. But nothing buried there ever rests in peace. 
come back to me, Gage. Paramount Pictures presents Stephen King's chilling bestseller. No! Pet Cemetery, rated R. Now playing at theaters everywhere. And I must say that when I first saw it, I was a little bit disappointed. I kind of hate saying that, especially since the screenplay was adapted by King himself. And at this point in 89, he had done the screenplay for Creepshow and for his own directorial debut with Maximum Overdrive. I think that's it. I have to double check. If you know, let me know. I can't keep all of these facts straight, people. And it's a faithful adaptation. Uh, There's just these touches that don't necessarily work for me. The book is dark, and the end is dark. And a lot of that darkness is absent from the movie. It boils down to being a story about grief, about losing a child, which is one of the most horrifying things that I think a person could go through. It's one of my greatest fears. Uh, And even when I read that at 14 or 15, it was impactful. Uh, And it's just not... It doesn't hit quite as hard in the film. And and part of that is due to the young actors in the uh, kids' roles. And some of it's just, I think, directorial style. I just think it could have gone a lot darker. Plus, there are a few King predilections throughout that I don't hold as dearly as he does. We've got a lot of Ramones music. And I don't mind the Ramones. I've never been a huge fan. I like a lot of their early stuff. The stuff that was coming out around this time and the songs that are in the movie are not among my favorites of theirs. And that just ends up kind of blurring that edge of the dark aspect that the book had. It's time for another tangent. I think this is the first time I really noticed the Manor accent with Fred Gwynn as Judd Crandall. Uh, I was used to it by this point on Murder, She Wrote. And I knew it from the books. It was a confusing thing to me, actually, when I was younger reading the books, the A-Up. Because I had no idea what the hell they were saying or what it meant. And it was really absent from most of the previous films. I think in Cujo, some of the side characters kind of affect that accent. But, you know, it's totally absent in Christine. That takes place in L.A. The movie does. I uh, can't honestly think of a film prior to Pet Cemetery that hit it as hard as the Judd Crandall character does in this. And it just, it makes me think of Murder, She Wrote. And that's just a minor quibble that I had to put in as a tangent because I do love Fred Gwynn in this. Uh, probably my favorite actor in the film or my favorite performance, I should say. Uh, The rest of the cast doesn't really do much for me, and I think that might be my biggest issue with the movie. It is a movie that I watch again and again, and I read the book a bunch back then. This was one of the ones that was multiple readings, partly because it was shorter than some of the previous novels, but also the writing was more streamlined. We didn't have such excessive backstory for everybody. Uh, A lot of the excessive description is gone. It's just a lot more streamlined. It's a lot more to the point 
and straightforward, which I appreciated and recognized even back then. I'm trying to reread it right now. I actually started it before my reread of The Shining and just got stalled for some reason. The rest of the cast includes Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed, Denise Crosby as Rachel Creed, Blaze and or Bo Berdahl as Ellie, their daughter, and little Miko Hughes as Gage. And in a few years, Miko Hughes would be in Wes Craven's A New Nightmare. I don't really recognize him so much in stuff anymore, but he's got a long list of credits. He's continued working. I think Blaze Berdahl does a lot of voice acting, as many of these uh, child stars end up doing, which I think is great. And then we also have Brad Greenquist as Pascal. And he was in an 80s favorite of mine, The Bedroom Window, with <laughs> with Steve Guten. It's basically a rear window ripoff, but I remember watching that a bunch back then. I feel a little bad complaining about the child actors. And there's a lot of heavy emotional stuff in this, so I think that was just a little tough for these kid actors. And without the right motivation... It comes out as a little bit forced at times and weak at other times. The ending with little Miko Hughes as the zombified Gage, the returned living dead Gage, works in parts and not in other parts. I mean, sometimes it was on the other day and my wife was in there and we were kind of chuckling at some of it. The slicing of the Achilles tendon is one of the most horrifying scenes in a Stephen King movie. There is a good amount of gore and blood in this adaptation, and I think that was kicked up in reshoots after some test screenings, which is always a fun thing to think about. All in all, for a late 80s horror movie, it is serviceable. Now, I have not seen the new version. I don't want to say remake, because when you're making a movie based on other source material, it's not really a remake. If I have said that about other King adaptations that have been done more than once, I apologize because I don't I don't like that term in these cases. I mean, how many remakes of Frankenstein have there been? Well, they're all going back in some way or another to the source material. There we go again. Okay, I'll get off my high horse about that stuff. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really interested in it because it is by Dennis... Widmeyer and Kevin Kolsch, who directed Starry Eyes, which is one of my favorites of recent years. Even though they kind of spoiled the twist that they gave the story, one of the twists, when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's a smart idea. And I don't know if I should give it away here. Something pretty significant is changed. And after briefly feeling shocked by it, I thought, oh, that kind of makes sense for a number of reasons, but it's not streaming anywhere. I'm a cheapskate. I didn't see it in the theater, so I got to wait until it comes around. There was a, uh, I almost said remake. There was a sequel also directed by Mary Lambert that is interesting. A lot of people really like it. I've watched it once. It's a curious movie to say the least. It's quite strange. And uh, it's worth checking out if you have any interest in Pet Cemetery itself and haven't seen the sequel yet, or if you're a King fan and haven't seen it. Um, yeah, you know, 
couple hours out of your life won't kill you. Well, sometimes that is better. Alrighty, we have reached the end of this episode. I tried to cut out some of the chaff and keep this as short as possible since I was talking about one more film, and I think I managed to do that. I did not discuss the soundtracks in any detail this time. Uh, Of course, we have the Carpenter score with Christine. Uh, Tangerine Dream was always fascinating to me. They did a lot of soundtracks back in the 80s, and I had no idea who these people were, Uh, but I loved the name, and their scores are generally pretty interesting. They scored Firestarter. Uh, Elliot Goldenthal scored Pet Cemetery, and he had also done Drugstore Cowboy, old favorite of mine. And Charles Bernstein did the score for Cujo. If you want any information about those composers, look it up, people. The next Stephen King episode will center on the years 1984 to 1987, when things start to slow down in my interest in King overall. And then after that, I'm not really sure what's going to happen I am up for suggestions as always. I was thinking about tackling the Bachman books because that was a really big deal for me when it came out and when that whole story broke. And so I may talk about those books that have already been adapted. There are the adaptations from different seasons, from Night Shift stories. Uh, There are some good movies amongst all of that. That I could get into. Creepshow was a big deal back then for me. Uh, There's that to talk about some of the other anthologies. I actually like Creepshow too. Cat's Eye is kind of fun. There's always Maximum Overdrive as part of the Night Shift collection. That is Big Dumb Fun that I just recently rewatched. So there's all kinds of stuff. I'll, I'll mull it over. If anybody wants something specifically discussed, please let me know. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep sending out calls for suggestions, and whether I get them or not is up to you. Uh, but that should do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget... Anything can happen when you wake up heavy. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.